Coming to you live from the headquarters of Ariel Tours in New York, I'm Mayor Weingarten. Welcome to the Israel Show on the Nachum Siegel Network.
Yonatan Razel, Hatov, off of the album Poteach Lev, opens things up on this live, live, live edition of the Israel Show, coming to you, Honda Nachum Siegel Network. My name is Mayor Weingarten. We're here each and every Monday, immediately following JMDAM, 9 a.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Israel time around the world. Whatever time it is, that's the time we are on. And, of course, we're available via the JMDAM, no, no, the Nachum Siegel Network app, which is available for free in the various stores and uh, and so forth, and um, also at nachumsegel.com. You can find us there, archives and all. So there is a story of the um, many in the genre of the Chachmei Chelm, the Sages of Chelm, which does a terrible injustice to the city of Chelm, which actually existed, and probably they weren't so silly. And they had a bridge, a wooden bridge, that was built over the large river that ran through the town. And over the years, as the bridge was used over and over again, it started uh, breaking. And the slats of wood would fall, and the bridge started shaking, and then a person fell into the river. And then a a carriage that was carrying uh, parents and and children fell into the river, and people were getting injured, and, and terrible things were happening, and it was a big danger for the people of the city that needed to cross the river. So the wise men of Helm got together and um, thought and thought and thought. And they sat for seven days and seven nights. And then they finally said, you know what we need? We need to build a hospital right here, right near the river, so when somebody gets injured, they'll be able to take them right into the hospital. What does that have to do with the situation in Israel and Aza? We'll tell that to you, uh, that, and a lot of other information about what's going on in Israel after Itzik Dadier and Hakol Tov. Hatov and Hakol Tov, because at the end of the day, everything is good. My name is Mayor Weingarten. You're tuned to the Israel Show on the Nachum Siegel Network. Shrek Tami, 
Yol Tov, Itzik Dadier, with uh, with that number, and we hope that everything in Israel will be great. Uh, it was a difficult week for Israelis in Israel, especially those who live in the southern part of Israel, from Be'er Sheva, Steirot, Netivot, Otef Aza, what's known as Otef Aza, Netivasara, um, and all those kibbutzim and moshavim around literally around the, the border with Aza, they all suffered terribly from um, the firing of hundreds and hundreds of missiles into Israel. Why? Well, the official excuse is that Israel knocked off a uh, Islamic Jihad terrorist, someone who carried out terror acts against the citizens of Israel and continued to plan terrorist activity against the people of Israel and Israel decided that this is a ticking time bomb and they have all the right to have um, to, to carry out a targeted what they call a targeted assassination or a targeted killing against him this leader of uh, one of the leaders of the Islamic Jihad in Aza, by the way, there are two groups in Aza. There's the Hamas, and then there's the Islamic Jihad. Can you imagine in that small little area, there's two groups? The Islamic Jihad is supposedly more radical. Here's the way I would describe it. Hamas is very, 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 very extreme and radical Islamic terror organization. And uh, the Jihad, Islamic Jihad, is a very, 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 very extreme and radical terrorist organization. Uh, Baha Abu El Atta is the terrorist that Israel killed as a response. You understand how this works? It's not that Israel killed him in response to all the terror attacks he carried out. No, Israel started now supposedly, and so in res- and this is the way it's featured in the in the world news, and in response to Israel's actions. The Islamic Jihad, supposedly without support from the Hamas, I don't, know, I, don't, I don't understand how that works exactly. Hamas is in charge. Um, they shelled Israel for about two or three days until Israel, and Israel, by the way, Israel kept saying, we want a ceasefire, we were not starting targeted killings again. There was a period of time that Israel targeted the heads of the Hamas and the heads of the Islamic Jihad and killed them off, picked them off one after the other. And at that point, Hamas felt, uh-oh, uh-oh, we're, on the, we're under the firing range. And that created a huge deterrent. And they agreed, Hamas did at the time, to, uh, to uh, quiet. That's how you deter a terrorist. You just keep killing the heads of the terror organization. Not that a new terror, a new head won't crop up. Of course it will, or he will. But um, but in the meantime, there's the deterrence. It's like America and Russia during and the USSR during the Cold War, right? There was mutual uh, deterrence. Everybody was afraid of what the other guy can do and that the other guy was ready to do it. But you have to believe that the other guy is ready to do it well after Israel knocked this guy off and Israel announces we're, we're not returning to targeted killings 
and they felt safe on the other side of the Azov water over there, the Palestinian Arabs. So they started firing rockets to Israel. And what happens? Does Israel bomb them and kill them? Israel bombed and bombed and bombed and bombed. And every time they, every time they uh, uh, sent rockets, Israel attacked some facility, a facility where no one was present. Oh, that was a facility that manufactured... I don't know. They always have some story of what the facility was and why it was an important target. But at the end of the day, if it doesn't create a deterrence, nothing happens. So why is it? Or how is it that Israel knocks off a jihadist, a terrorist, and half of Israel is paralyzed for three days? That is a question which appeared in many articles that were written over this past weekend, mainly by right-wing um, conservative writers in Israel, but also by some of those who are in the middle of the road, more towards the left, someone, by the way, like uh, Ben Dror Yemini, who believes in a two-state solution and giving territory to the Arabs, not now, not now, obviously, and so forth, but, uh, but he's a realistic guy, unlike many on Israel's left. And they all sort of, in one way or the other, spoke about this old parable, which it seems is not 100% true, but it doesn't matter. It just gives you an idea. It's the parable about boiling frogs, frogs, tzvardim, in water. So if you put a frog in boiling water, it'll sense the hot water and it'll immediately jump out. But if you put a frog in cold water then he'll stay there. And if you very gradually turn up the temperature very slowly, then the frog doesn't notice and doesn't jump out. He was in cold water. Now, okay, it's a little warmer now. That's fine. Okay, it's a little warmer. Okay, I'll, I'll, I can deal with this. I can. And at the end of the day, the frog never jumps out because always the difference of how bad it was before to how bad it is now is very incremental, very small. And ultimately... He's boiled to death. Sivan Rav Meir asks, if somebody would have told you in the 90s, in the 1990s, that in 30 years from now, Israel would kill a terrorist, not even a huge name terrorist, and that that act would paralyze half of the country, wouldn't believe it. But it happened because of this boiling the frog metaphor. It started with Oslo. Aza and Jericho first. That was the mantra in Oslo. Israel withdraws from most of Aza, leaves in part of the army, leaves in some of the uh, towns and cities. It started. The rocket fire started. Very small, very inaccurate. But the frog stayed in the water and then the heat went up a little more. They fired more rockets and Israel decided that as a response to that, Ariel Sharon decided Israel should withdraw from Aza, what they call the Hitnat Kut. 
in laundered, whitewashed terms. And suddenly, there is now an Arab, sovereign Arab nation in Aza, controlled by the Palestinian Authority. Heat goes up just a little more. And then Hamas takes over now. The heat goes up more. Hamas takes over this Gaza terrorist country. And when Israel withdraws from Aza, Ariel Sharon and the Minister of Defense at the time announce publicly, it's all recorded, it's all there, you can hear it if you really want to, if they dare to fire even one rocket after we withdraw, we will show them who's the boss. We will come down on them, blah, 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 blah. And the rocket's fired, and nobody does anything. And another rocket, and another rocket, and another rocket. And the other side understands that they can keep raising the flames slowly and but surely. And the rockets reach further and further into Israel. Now they're reaching Beersheba. Now they're reaching Ashdod. Now they're reaching Ashkelon. Now they're Ashkelon, Ashdod. Now they're reaching Yavne. And yes, at times sporadically they're reaching even to Tel Aviv and the water gets hotter and hotter the water is already boiling but at the end of the day we've just gotten used to it the water isn't yet going to kill us but this is how we reach a point where Israel targets a terrorist with blood on his hands Jewish blood and Israel can't put an end to two and three days of shelling of their civilian population with the greatest army in the world you know it's interesting that Israel tried to export the Iron Dome During these two and three days, 90% of the rockets that were shot to Israel were shot down by the Iron Dome. The Iron Dome is the hospital and the Helm story. Instead of fixing the bridge, they build a hospital near the bridge. Instead of stopping the rocket fire, the Israeli genius, and it is genius builds a machine that shoots down the rockets. No! Don't build a hospital. Fix the bridge. When Israel tried to export the Iron Dome, no country wanted to buy it. It's interesting. It's an amazing technology. It can shoot down short-range rockets being fired at you. It's miraculous. Why wouldn't any other country want it? because no other country would allow their enemies to shell the civilian population for more than four and a half days. Israel is the only country in the world where a small group of terrorists can shut down the country. With a huge army that can't do anything, obviously. Even Netanyahu, who represents the right wing, is trying to reach an agreement with Hamas. A Hazdara, some sort of a agreement.
with a bunch of terrorists. Common leap skinned and Bendror Yamini both write that Iron Dome is like a drug, like an addictive drug. And the Israeli government and Israeli security have become drug addicts that are addicted to Iron Dome. We don't have to we don't have to become victorious over our enemy we don't have to deter them anymore 90% of the times they shoot and they don't hit anything so we feel good we feel that we've won nothing terrible happened Sivan Rav Meir writes similarly we praise the genius and correctly so we praise the genius of Israel for inventing Iron Dome. But we should think for a minute, what would happen if there wouldn't be an Iron Dome? What would be if, think about it for a second, take away the Iron Dome, and now think of hundreds of rockets shelling civilian population in Israel, and people getting killed, and people getting injured. What would happen then? We wouldn't, we, we wouldn't make peace with that kind of situation, even for one day when hundreds of rockets had fired on Israel. And so Sivan Rav Meir writes, the irony is that Iron Dome protects Israel very well, but also protects Aza. Because as long as Israel has it, and Israel is uh, addicted to it, if you will, it won't take the necessary actions to fix the problem. And Ben-Jor Yamini takes it a step further, and, and uh, he's right. He says it's because Israel has two fronts, always, always is fighting on two fronts. One is on the ground, at the border. But the second is in the world's public opinion, and Israel has a war that is fighting there as well. And we'll continue with that um, idea that's presented by Benjor Yamini right after this uh, musical interlude and uh, with a salute to the Helm story and the bridge. Here is <laughs> Sapir off of the album Echoes with Kol Ha'olam Kulo Gesher Tsar Me'od. My name is Mayor Weingarten. You are tuned to The Israel Show. On the Nachum Siegel Network.
Sapir Kolalam Kulo Gesher Tsar Meod here on the Israel Show. My name is Mayor Weingarten. You're tuned to the Nachum Siegel Network. So we're talking about uh, three people, uh, three articles that appeared in this weekend's Israeli press, Sivan Rahav Meir, Kalman Lipskin, and Ben Dror Yamini. And Ben Dror Yamini takes this uh, to the next step, which is, okay, why is it that Israel doesn't respond? Why is it that Israel doesn't uh, invade Aza or do whatever it needs to do to stop the shelling of a civilian population and he points out that Israel and we know this is at every point in time facing two enemies one is the enemy on the ground and the other is the international public opinion which I would add is uh, echoed and um, it's it, it, it's sound is its volume is so high due to the fact that the international media all over the world well if it's international it's all over the world that the media around the world echo and echo and echo and echo and echo the uh, the anti-israel propaganda so if they would, if Israel would start some sort of a major battle against Aza, as any other country would do if the civilian population was under rocket fire, you would have tons of demonstrations around the world. People would talk about a massacre and genocide and all the civil, quote-unquote, human rights organizations would come out. It's done. They've done this in the past. And they'll do it again. And there'll be a UN outrage and there'll be a Goldstone report of, of whatever form it would take this time around. And Netanyahu knows that. So what do you do? Well, he has, an, he has his suggestion. I don't know if that would work. I don't know, but you see the jam that Israel is now in. And I guess the trick in hindsight is not to stay in the water, is to jump out when the water is still cold, or in this case, not to leave Aza in the first place. Those who believe that um, leaving Aza step one in the Oslo process and step two in the Hitnat Kut. People think, oh, that, and Israel's, believe it or not, that people will still say Israel's more secure now, but at the time, there were, there were huge ads in all the newspapers signed by generals, not current generals, but past generals, retired generals, saying how Israel needed to leave Aza and Israel would be more secure and blah, 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 and everybody just was fooling themselves. He points out something fascinating. Benjur Yamini, who's, who's an expert on the issue of uh, the anti-Israel canard that, that travels around the world, that embeds itself in universities around the world, it's horrifying. So he says, here's an example Bernie Sanders gets up and says that if he becomes president don't worry, I hope you never know, but don't let's let's hope that it doesn't happen. If he becomes president, 
he would take aid that America gives Israel and redirect it to Gaza to help Gaza avoid the the terrible situation that they're in now, to help rebuild Gaza, to help the poverty and, and the terrible conditions that they're in. You know where he said this? He said this at a J Street convention. J Street is a Jewish organization that claims to be pro-Israel. They're like a leftist APAC. And you know how the crowd reacted when Bernie Sanders said, I would take aid that America is giving Israel, take it away from Israel, and give it to Gaza. They applauded, probably more than I applauded for anything else that he said. And so on campuses and around the world, Israel would be portrayed as the evil, genocidal terrorists that are torturing the people of Gaza. Gaza doesn't need money, Bernie Sanders. Gaza has all the money in the world. Gaza gets money from Qatar. Gaza gets money from the European Union. They just decide to use their money to build tunnels in the millions of dollars, million, tens of millions of dollars worth of tunnels. They use their money to buy weapons. They use their money to make their weapons even more and more accurate so that they can hit closer to the Israeli cities, closer to the civilians. Does anybody say anything? Nobody really cares. Nobody really cares. And Israel, it seems, as Ben Jorimini points out, has a problem not with being genius, a tactical genius. Look, the invention of Iron Dome is miraculous. It's amazing. But strategically, as they point out, it's an addiction. It's a drug. So we can be tactical genius, but strategical morons, maybe, or, or silly, silly people. In an interview last Thursday, the immediate past director of the Shin Bet, Israel Security Organization, Internal Security, which is in charge of Yudan Shomron and Aza as well, revealed that about 10 years ago, 8 to 10 years ago, he said, he didn't remember the exact time, it became uh, aware, Israel became Israel intelligence became aware that the Palestinian Arabs are smuggling in huge machines called CNC machines, computer numerically controlled machines, which would allow the manufacturer via computer control of precise parts for the 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 rockets that they're using to shell these. So they basically had, as he said, a mini arms manufacturing plant. Now these are huge machines. They take up about the size of half your dining room. And the intelligence knew it. And they wanted to bomb the, the, the smuggling route and bomb the machines. And the government didn't give them the okay. They were afraid of this one would say that, and this one would say this, and the world would say something else, and, and here we are. It's an amazing uh, revelation 
I'll play you the clip. It's a one-minute clip. I'll play you the actual quote. His name is Yoram Cohen. He's the immediate past director of the Shin Bet, and this interview was on Khan Reshet Bet on the Dekel Segal program. עד אז הרקטות שלהם היו מוגבלות בטווח, מוגבלות בדיוק וגם בקצב הייצור. ברגע שהם הכניסו את זה, מכונה כזאת זה גודל של חצי חדר, ברגע שהם הכניסו כמה כאלה, הם בעצם בנו תעש פלסטיני. אנחנו, אנחנו זה אומר שב"כ ואמ"ן בצה"ל, זיהינו בחלק לא מעט מהמקרים את המכונות האלו נכנסים מכיוון מצרים. אבל לא את כולם. אבל את הרוב. כן. ויכולנו לפגוע בהם האוויר, ולפוצץ אותם, כן? ולמה זה לא קרה? זה לא קרה כי היו דילמות, האם כדאי לעשות את זה, וכשאתה עושה את זה אתה אולי הורג אנשים מסביבם, ואז אתה נכנס לסבב ושאתה לא רוצה להיכנס. כי אני הייתי אז בתפקיד, אמנם לי הייתה דעה מסוימת, אני לא רוצה שיישמע משהו מסוים, אני רק אומר, לפעמים אתה לא עושה מעשה בזמן אמת, אתה מקבל מצב עתידי הרבה יותר מורכב להתמודד איתו. There are times when you choose not to jump out of the water as the frog. You choose not to jump out of the water, and then you don't realize the mistake that you made at that particular moment, and there's no going back. He says that is the moment in time that they were able to start making, manufacturing more and more rockets in way larger numbers, more precise rockets. And by allowing them to be smuggled in, that was one of the mistakes Israel made. Now, I want to make, be very, very clear. Please, don't understand this as a second-guessing or, a, or, a, or a, a Monday morning quarterback or a backseat driver. I'm trying to show you what the situation in Israel is and how we got there. I can't begin to imagine... The difficulty of the decisions that the leadership made over these years I don't think for a second that any of Israeli leaders from Rabin to Sharon to Netanyahu to Barak I don't believe for a second that they don't want the best for Israel they do but unfortunately you They don't always make the right decisions because they're human. And sometimes they're blinded by other factors. But don't think for a second that when they decided not to bomb those machines or when they decided to, uh, on the Oslo process, Yitzhak Rabin believed that this would bring security to Israel. And I think it's important to remember that. Okay, we'll take a musical break with Udi Davidi and Reuve Orisha Zareach. Then we'll come back and in the time that remains we'll tell you a little bit about what's going on on the political scene. I do, you know what, I want to point something out before we go to the music. A new book came out last week. It's a compilation of articles that were written by Mitchell Furst. 
of Teaneck, New Jersey. I, I do not know him personally. Now, I've read some of his columns and I purchased the book, Roots and Rituals. I didn't get a review copy. I purchased it. Roots and Rituals, Insights into Hebrew Holiday and History. And uh, he has quite a number of uh, columns there that are brought down in this compilation, which are very similar to what we do in Meir Milim, or we did in Meir Milim back in the day, where we would take a word and um, analyze its etymology. He also goes into different customs, customs that relate to holidays, tefillah, and other things, and he tries to get to the root source of certain things that, you know, we learn certain uh, ideas and concepts of why we do this, why we do that. We learned that at a very young age, and we're never taught it again as adults. So as adults, we remain with a childish viewpoint. And uh, Mitchell First is also a lawyer, obviously uh, is extremely knowledgeable. He has a degree, I believe, in Jewish history from uh, Bernard Revel Graduate School. And uh, he, he's done a lot of research on a lot of, a lot of different uh, uh, things. He also has a previous book, Esther Unmasked, which I think I'm going to have to get now because I see what a great job he does. Solving 11 Mysteries of the Jewish Holidays and Liturgy. So um, it's Roots and Rituals by Mitchell First, if you're, if you're interested. Back to music. Udi Davidi with Uva Orisha Zareach. My name is Mayor Weingarten. You are tuned to The Israel Show on the Nachum Siegel Network. Sahua 
אודי דוידי, ראו ואורי שזורח. My name is Mayor Weingarten. You are tuned to the Israel Show on the Nachum Single Network. Thank you so much for joining us, making us a part of your week. Tell your friends, tell your friends that they can get an app for free called the Nachum Single Network app. And uh, through it, they can hear this show on a weekly basis. You can even sign up to get it as a podcast where it'll be downloaded automatically into your device every week. If you like the show and you have a friend who you think will like the show as well, please do that. So in less than 48 hours, if you're listening live, Wednesday is the deadline for Benny Gantz, the head of the Blue and White Party, Kacholavan, to present a government to the president and then to the Knesset of Israel, and the government has to have a majority. Nobody can put together a majority government because nobody has enough supporters, no party, neither the Likud nor the Blue and White Party, both of whom have about 31, 32 seats in the 120-seat Knesset, none of them have the ability to put together a government. This is after the second election. So there's been talk for the last few days about a minority government, Memshelet Mi'ut. So what is a minority government? And how does that work? Amit Segal, the brilliant... Channel 2 and Yediyoda Chronot analyst says that it Mimshel Miyud is a, a government that does not have the support of 61 Knesset members but it has a majority and the truth is that if you have a majority meaning you, you can have a majority of of, of of 20 to, to 18, and all the rest abstaining. That's also a majority, and you can, you can form a government with a majority. But if you don't have 61, then it's called Memshel et Miyut, a minority government. Meaning you don't, in a sense, from a, from a public perspective, you don't have a mandate from the people. You're able to cobble together votes, but you don't have a a clear mandate to do anything major. And yet, 
two of the most major things that impact Israel to this very day as we have just analyzed. Oslo and the Hitnatkut, the, um, the evacuation from Aza by the Sharon government, were both done at a time that there was no clear mandate. There was Memshelet Miut. There were bin government ruled for two years after Shas left with a minority government and Sharon for the half a year during the, for half a year during the fight over the uh, evacuation of Aza, the expulsion, what they called the Hitnat Kut. Sharon also had a minority government. Very interesting. Very interesting point. But they all became minority governments. None of them started off as a minority government, which is very difficult. He, he brings an example here of a case that it happened, but it was very unusual circumstances. It, it could be said almost that under normal, normal circumstances, it, was never ha- it never happened that a government was presented as a minority government. And he says... He doesn't think there's a chance of getting minority because what does a minority government mean? It means that you have to make a deal with the Arab party that has, I think, 13 seats, 13 votes in the Knesset. You'd have to make a deal with them that they would abstain during the vote for the government. So there would be blue and white, there would be merits, and there would be the Labour Party... And against that would be the Likud and their block of 55. So let's say if you add up all those parties together, Gantz has 56, 57. And the Arabs don't vote. So you, 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 have, a, you have a majority without having a mandate of 61, without having the... Um, the Knesset, more than half of the Knesset voting for you. And he says, Amit Segal, that he can't imagine that this would ever happen, although the threat of it happening seems to be getting closer and closer, but he knows what is posturing and what is real. He believes that Lieberman could never support such a government because of his uh, many, many statements that the Arabs are like... um, fifth column in Israel and so forth, he would never allow a government to rise that would be supported and rely on the votes of the uh, Arab parties, some of whom in that block of Arab parties, there are three different parties, one of the parties is is virulently anti-Zionist, anti-Israel, and I, I don't understand why it's even legal to why that party is legal. I guess the judges are afraid to make it look bad to ban an Arab party in Israel. The world would say you're not a real democracy, but you can ban Jewish parties for sure. That, that they do all the time. And Lieberman would ultimately return to the right wing, and if he would do that, then then it's then you're done. He has eight seats. The right is missing um, is missing six.
So that that's the way that would work, and it could work. Or, alternatively, new elections. Oh my gosh, it's crazy. And, and, and I believe that in new elections, Netanyahu would go down again. Netanyahu lost a lot of votes in this past election, the second one. And in another one, all most analysts believe he would he would lose a lot more votes. So it's a huge risk for him. Maybe a risk not worth taking. But he has he does have an agenda and he does have an ulterior motive. He wants to be prime minister when the indictment comes down, if it comes down, probably will. And when that when that indictment comes down, he wants to be prime minister because he feels it gives him a much better position vis-a-vis the court. By the way, according to Israeli law, if you're a minister in a government and you're indicted, you have to resign. But if you're a prime minister and you're indicted, you do not have to resign until and unless you're convicted that is just a fascinating law. They don't want the courts to be able to bring down the prime minister. Interesting. Okay, we're going to end off with, uh, let's see, what should we end off with? How about Yosef Karduner with Kita Avor B'mayim? We'll end off with that. Try and get that whole one in. It's a great song. Before we do that, before we end off with Yosef Kardiner, we thank you so much. Really, thank you so much for listening and for getting others to listen. Thanks for your Facebook likes and comments. Facebook.com slash The Israel Show. Thanks to the Stanford and Nachum Siegel Network and my very special thanks, as always, to Nachum Siegel. Coming up on the Nachum Siegel Network, Yoni Pollock with After Further Review, covering the latest in the world of sports. And then Novak Now with Jake Novak on the issues of the day. Always very interesting. And then, the great... Monday, Music Marathon. Until next Monday, immediately following JM in the AM, this is Mayor Weingarten reminding you that nice guys do not finish last. They're just running in a different race.
Shabbat shalom. 